Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm David Partain, and I'm joined with my co-host, Laura Gregg. Hello, Laura. Hello, David. It is a muggy and hot day here in Chicago, and we have a great guest today. As you know, as an advisor, an important behavioral theme we've been focusing on is how financial advisors can earn trust and influence their clients. Our guest today is someone who is intricately involved in understanding why people make the decisions they do and has researched the psychology of high net worth investors. Patrick Fagan is a behavioral scientist with more than a decade of experience applying psychology to influencing behavior in the real world. Patrick is a guest lecturer at three London universities, has published peer-reviewed papers on topics ranging from Facebook psychology to facial expressions, and is an author of multiple books, including Hooked, which dives into the psychology of effective marketing communications, which I have read and is a great book. Patrick is regularly published on the BBC, The Evening Standard, and The Spectator. Previously, Patrick was the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytics and is now a co-founder of and chief scientific officer at Capuchin Behavioral Science. Patrick, thank you for joining us on the Flexible Advisor podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here from London, where you'll be surprised to hear it's cloudy and overcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess we would. We have a partner on our team in London, and that is pretty much what she says about the weather on most days. So, Patrick, we are excited, as I mentioned, to have you on the show. And to start out, I'd love to hear more about you, your work at Capuchin, and what drew you to the work of behavioral science. Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll introduce myself quickly. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Patrick, although sometimes uh, I ask people to call me Pat although I don't like it, so please don't. Um, <laughs> but the, re- the reason I say that is uh, psychological research has shown that people who use a nickname or a shorter name are seen as more cheerful and popular, which I think is where I could use the most help. And so that's the kind of thing I do as an applied behavioral scientist is take psychological research and academia, which can be quite um, abstract, and think about how to practically apply it in the real world, such as UX optimizing your own name, um, but obviously more pertinently uh, understanding customers, how to improve advertising and websites and user experiences and so on. Uh, So my shtick is that I turn minds into money on the mind side, the academic side. I'm a part-time lecturer, as you said, and uh, have a couple of books and papers. Uh, But on the uh, commercial side, Uh, I've been doing this for a good long while now, applying behavioral science to uh, understanding why people do things, uh, what different audience segments might exist, and most importantly, uh, of course, how to persuade people by using the right information and framing, uh, aesthetics, and so on. And so that's what we do at Capuchin Behavioral Science. Uh, Essentially, there are three strands to our work. Uh, One is uh, who, Well, the three are who, what, how, and one of them is who, which is understanding audiences psychologically. Uh, So what motivates them? 
what triggers certain behaviors, what barriers need to be overcome, that kind of thing. But in particular, doing psychographic segmentations. So these are audience segmentations, but really focusing on psychology and behavior, looking at things like personality, values, motives. So ultimately, we can craft messaging and user experiences and even products that really resonate with people on the deep psychological level. And sometimes also reading data footprints to inform that as well. So we can see if uh, users use certain apps, then they're more likely to have a certain type of personality. uh, And so therefore they'll respond better to certain types of messaging. Then the second strand is the uh, what, which is about brand proposition, presenting a brand or a product in the right way to appeal to the target market, understanding what the best symbols are to really resonate on the subconscious level. Um, A nice illustration of this, uh, there is a, or was a pioneer of marketing and advertising called Edward Bernays. And he was consulted by Betty Crocker's cake mix to increase sales of the product. It wasn't selling very well with its target market, who were housewives at the time in the 50s, I think. And through some research, he found that they weren't buying it because they felt like it was cheating and not really giving their love to their family. And so his recommendation was to change the recipe to require an egg to be cracked into it. Uh, Number one, because we like stuff that we make. And so they felt like they were having an active role in making it, what we now call the Ikea effect. Uh, But number two, there's a lot of potent symbolism in an egg uh, to do with femininity and and, uh, maternalism and so on. And so what we do sometimes for brands is find out what is their version of the egg, the symbol that's really going to resonate with audiences. And then finally, the how is about messaging uh, and how to present your information, present your product in the most effective way. So this could be on a website. If you move the button from the bottom right to the top left, people are more likely to click on it, that kind of thing. Uh, It can be optimizing advertising and make it more emotionally engaging and attention grabbing packaging to get noticed and bought on the shelf, whatever it might be. Um, So that's what we do at Capuchin is the who, what, and how. Um, As for me, uh, I love psychology because I love to understand how people think. And I first got into the field when I was 17 or 18. I got really interested in it because I wanted to know how to pick up girls, basically. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but there it is. But then I really, really got into it and learned a lot about it and, and, and went from there. So yeah, it's really uh, just fascinating learning about human behavior. So Patrick, I've been to the the website, I've read your book, I've also read some of the other things you've written, and one of the terms that I've heard you use is nudges. You've used that term in the construct of commitment, authority, social proof, and others when trying to elicit a, you know, like a particular behavior. You've even recommended personalized nudges. Tell us what a nudge is, and from a behavioral standpoint, how can it help business leaders and advisors? Uh, So we are all what's known as cognitive misers, meaning we have very limited brain power for dealing with the world. You know, there's a huge amount of, or infinite amount of information and choice in the universe, and we simply don't have the time or the cognitive energy or the motivation to deal with it all and process it consciously and rationally. Mm. One researcher estimated we're faced with over 200 food decisions every day, and that's just food. So you wake up and you think, should I have breakfast? What should I have? I have cereal, which one? 
Should I have it in a bowl? Should I add milk? How much should I eat? Etc. Etc. If we thought these through rationally, carefully, it would take forever. So we have to instead rely on subconscious shortcuts or rules of thumb that are called heuristics. Hmm. So if, for example, uh, you're in a foreign city for a business trip for one night, and you can only find two restaurants to eat at, one of them's extremely busy and one of them's completely empty. Which one are you going for? Well, most people say the busy one, and they say it very quickly because of a heuristic called social proof. If it's busy, it must be good. You don't need to think about it carefully. You just know immediately. Um, and so a nudge is essentially using these biases, these heuristics to influence behavior in a certain way. So for example, taking social proof, you can get people to pay their taxes on time by sending them a letter telling them that 90% of people in their postcode have already completed their tax returns. Uh, so it's using social proof to nudge behavior. Oh, and ultimately, if you can understand these shortcuts and turn them into nudges, you can, as I said earlier, turn mind into money. Uh, and there's so many applications really, wherever there's behavior to change, which is everywhere, uh, nudges can help. You can increase conversion. You could maybe reduce fraud. You could potentially even predict the financial market if you have the right behavioral data. Uh, and then as you mentioned as well, there's also the potential to personalize nudges. So if somebody is very extroverted and sociable, they're more likely to be influenced by ego appeals. So they'll they'll buy or use whatever makes them feel cool and popular and special. Whereas if someone is very, um, let's say, open to experiences, so if they're very creative and philosophical, they're more likely to be nudged by uh, metaphors and rhetorical questions and things that make them think. So yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And you really have to understand your market and the different segments in order to craft nudges that work. Wow, that's fascinating that you could judge where the stock market is going based off that. That's very fascinating. Patrick, let's kind of shift a little bit, if you don't mind, into, um, you know, selfishly our industry, which is financial advisory and wealth management. Um, as, as you know, we've uh, done, here at FlexShares done some behavioral research as well. Um, and not so surprising was that we found that building a trusting relationship is a, a critical thing for financial advisors to um, be able to best serve their clients and retain them for the long term. Um, you know, it, that strong relationship drives referrals and trust and ultimately the consolidation of the client's assets with their primary advisor. And in this research, we identified that there are five unique personas um, that are represented in, in nearly, you know, I would say every advisor's book of business because nobody's told me otherwise yet, but I'm sure uh, there's somebody that hasn't come across one of these. But our research shows that how you build trust with each persona looks very, very different. And, you know, the challenge is always that people have luck building a strong relationship, and then they think that that strategy uh, can just be repeated and used for everybody in their book of business. So I'm really interested to learn what your research and your background reveals about the psychology of how you build one-on-one -on -one trust and relationships. Uh, yeah, so there's three things that I would say about how to build trust. 
first of all, there are certain uh, generic, as it were, levers that work more or less with everyone. Uh, in fact, there are three of the levers, uh, warmth, competence, and prestige. So warmth is about being likable, being seen as ethical and kind and caring and so on. And if you're talking about one-to-one, -one, how to build trust, there are certain cues and tactics you can use to build that that warmth. Uh, for example, obviously smiling, uh, using their name when you talk to them, uh, mirroring their body language and repeating what they say back to them in your own words, that kind of thing. But you can also build these uh, as a brand as well. So through the fonts and colors you use can also build warmth. Uh, the second one is competence, uh, which is about being seen as uh, high performing, expertise, credible. Um, so this is about, for example, having ratings and certificates and awards, but also face-to-face, -face, um, it's about uh, uh, using things like technical language or maybe even one study suggests speaking with a deeper voice, this kind of thing to be seen as authoritative. Um, and then the third one is prestige, uh, which is about essentially what other people say about you. So it's um, your reviews um, and your endorsements. And if you have a fancy degree from a nice university, that kind of thing. So with these three levers, uh, you can get people to trust you more. Uh, secondly, there are also certain nudges which can be used to drive trust. Uh, I'll give you three examples. One is social modeling. So we tend to do what other people do. Um, there's even from a really basic physiological point of view, uh, mirror neurons where, for example, if you see someone laughing, you'll laugh, or if you see someone yawning, you'll yawn. But if you see someone else is doing a certain behavior, you're more likely to follow as well because you assume that it's trustworthy. Um, in the animal behavior world, there is a trap for birds called a Larsen trap. And how it works is there's a cage and when the bird goes in, it gets stuck and can't come out. Uh, and now birds are not as stupid as you might think. And generally speaking, they won't go into this cage because they don't trust it. But the Larsen trap has a bird that lives inside the cage and is watered and fed. Uh, and that lures the other birds in because they think it must be safe if there's a bird in there already. So we tend to follow what other people are doing. So if you can show that somebody is doing something already, others are more likely to trust it and therefore do it too. Another technique is the foot in the door technique where you want to kind of avoid big asks. If you try and ask someone to do something all at once, you know, there's a big risk and they may not trust it. But if you just pull them in gently, uh, step by step, you're more likely to get them there in the end. Um, and then finally, an, an example would be reactants. And this is about not trying to force people to do stuff. You can't, for example, push a horse or a donkey from behind. You have to lead it from the front. And if you try and push people, uh, then generally speaking, they kick back and, and maybe do the opposite of what you're asking them to do. So you need to be very clear that it's their choice uh, in order for them to trust it. And there's even something called the but you are free technique, where if you end a request with something like, oh, but it's up to you or it's your choice, uh, people are twice as likely to comply on average. So there are certain nudges and tactics uh, you can use. But thirdly and finally, uh, it also does depend, uh, as you say, on who you're talking to. It varies by person and also by segment. Um, so with some research that we've done on trust <clears throat> in the past, we looked at personality and we found, for example, uh, people who are open to experience are quite creative, are more likely to trust people 
who are exhibiting proof and who seem to be uh, have some kind of ethical code. Whereas people who are conscientious and organized, they're more likely to trust someone who seems to be competent and reliable. Extroverts trust someone who seems popular and cool. Agreeable people trust someone who's ethical and honest. Uh, and neurotic people trust someone who's confident and attractive. So this is why it's so important to do uh, segmentations and to understand the personas because what drives trust is probably going to be quite different for each segment, even though there are those segment agnostic levers and nudges I talked about, uh, how effective they are and which ones to choose will probably depend on who you're talking to. So th that is so interesting and it really um, kind of supports a lot of the things that we've been finding in our research. Um, you know, two things just pop out to me right away and that is the ask, you know, as we taught, we've done this research to help advisors figure out how they can get more of their clients' money to manage. And we found that, you know, you can ask that question directly one time a year. And the more you ask it after that, the more likely there is to have an adverse effect. But, you know, there are other things that you can do to build that relationship and kind of lead them to that water. And one of the other findings that we had, Patrick, was we did a follow-up where we did some advisor research, and um, we found that, you know, and it's not surprising now, uh, but that there are advisors, you know, who have their own personas, and they tend to enjoy working with people, you know, that are similar to them. And so we talk about client segmentation and I identifying ideal clients, Um so, yeah, I, well, I could go on and on, So, but I'll stop because I want to talk about one of your recent newsletters because you had a topic that I think may be really relevant to our financial advisor listeners. And the title was Why Humans Don't Accept New Facts. Um, I'm hoping that you'll share a little bit of context around this article and the research that you did and, importantly, how advisors can help their clients to be more open to expecting accepting advice that may seem contradictory to their own beliefs. Absolutely. Uh, so the research found that uh, people may not accept new facts because of a bias called loss aversion. Uh, now, loss aversion says we're about twice as sensitive to loss as we are to gain. Um, so losing $100 is twice as painful as it feels good to win uh, $100. Uh, and there's obviously an evolutionary advantage to this because losses can be fatal, uh, whereas gains, generally speaking, are just a nice bonus. And with respect to uh, learning new information, people may feel a uh, ownership and possession of their beliefs and an investment in their beliefs. They spent a long time researching it. Uh, they may have an attachment to it emotionally, and they don't want to lose that worldview. Uh, it's painful to lose something, painful to lose that intellectual investment. And so encountering a new fact that contradicts your worldview can be therefore painful. And so we may exhibit what's called uh, the ostrich effect or willful blindness and just not listen and stick our heads in the sand. And I do also know there's some um, uh, brain imaging research, which found that when people encounter information that's threatening to their current worldview, the part of the brain that deals with threat uh, lights up. So new information can actually be kind of a psychological threat to us. And uh, we don't like threats, we don't like danger, so we just tend to ignore them and not think about them, generally speaking. 
Um, and so how then can we get people to be more accepting to advice that may seem contradictory to their beliefs? Uh, well, there's a few techniques. Um, again, the foot in the door technique is quite important. Don't try and convince them of something overnight all at once. Uh, you know, that can be quite intimidating and overwhelming. There's a saying that you need to take people through the lobby before you show them the penthouse. So try and find some middle ground with them uh, and gently pull them along rather than overwhelming them with the whole argument at once. Also, uh, you can take your cue from the movie Inception and kind of plant seeds and, and just wait for them to germinate, really. There's no need to, to necessarily, again, try and convince someone all in one go or overnight. It just plants seeds of doubt. Uh, particularly asking questions can be very, very effective because it's using the generation effect where people are coming up with the answer themselves rather than just being passively told, which is not as sticky or effective. So don't be afraid to wait and give them some time to digest and just gently plant seeds. Uh, similarly, don't push it. So as I talked about earlier with reactants, where a donkey can't be pushed from behind, don't try and force them. Don't make them feel like their free will has been threatened. Uh, as they will just kind of kick back against it uh, in order to feel a sense of autonomy. And then finally, there's something uh, similar to questioning. It's called deep canvassing. And this is where you're encouraging them to take other people's perspectives or, or other perspectives in general. So ask them, for example, uh, how would you feel if X, Y, Z happened to you? Or what would it take for you to change your mind about this? Uh, but generally speaking, you can't really go wrong with questioning. So Patrick, I'm, I love your analogies. I think I remember you saying that if you want to get somebody that's incredibly brilliant, you use analogies. Is that correct? Is, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do love all the analogies you come up with and appreciate that. No, I love an analogy too. Um, yeah, it's very persuasive to present things in a visual format. Um, because then people can see it in their mind's eye. Yep. That's a lot more persuasive than yep. words, frankly. So, that, yeah, that is very interesting. And I'm just, um, you know, as researchers, we're, we're always thrilled when somebody else does work and we can see the intersection. So I'm really excited right now. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we looked at five uh, common, but, you know, very unique high net worth client personas. And if I could, I'd like to share a little bit of background on one of those personas and just get your reaction on how you su would suggest an advisor uh, to use nudges with that type of persona. Would that be okay? Of course. Great. So uh, the, the competitor is uh, one of our five personas. And these are folks uh, that generally portray themselves as always the smartest person in the room. Uh, and they also assume that they know much more than the advisor or the advisory team that they've hired to work on, on their behalf. Um, you know, for example, uh, the competitor may often conduct their own uh, security research. They're oftentimes obsessed with beating the market benchmarks. And usually the focus is on, you know, how much alpha did we get last quarter or last year? Um, and they portray themselves as very highly transactional and they they claim they'll allocate more or less to an advisor based solely on the short-term performance that's delivered. Which type of communication nudges would you recommend to advisors that are working with this um, hard-charging personality type? Um, 
That's very interesting because I've done many segmentations in my time across a range of industries and you do tend to see some similarities. Um, and this is a certain personality type, I think, that's probably quite disagreeable. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just means kind of maybe a bit cynical, competitive, aloof. Uh, it sounds like they're probably quite conscientious and analytical as well, but mostly uh, kind of competitive and, and um, uh, yeah, success-focused and maybe power-focused. Um, and so I imagine that you've drawn them up because they're quite hard to, to influence because they are cynical and, and a bit more cynical and detached. But there are still certain nudges and, and techniques that would work on them. Uh, one, for example, is the ego nudge. Uh, so anything that's going to boost their their feeling of status a little bit, make them feel special. Uh, and also you can tap into their motivations, what motivates them to do what they do. Uh, it sounds like it's probably because they want to be successful and they want to be influential. And so you would take that motivation and you would put that into whatever you're proposing to them as the outcome, the emotional and functional outcome of doing whatever the desired behavior is. Um, so it's the ego nudge and tapping into status motivations. There's also a nudge called strategic anti-nonconformity. Uh, basically what it is is reverse psychology. Because they are so uh, hard to influence in some ways because they don't conform, uh, you can actually possibly use reverse psychology. So uh, my wife, for example, I'm probably one of these people in this segment, by the way, and my wife knows that one of the best ways to get me to do something is to tell me to do the opposite. So maybe if you can do that here, you could corral them one way or the other. Um, also, I think because they may be quite uh, cynical and competitive, it's important to be honest. And there are certain nudges you can use to facilitate that perception of honesty. Uh, for example, giving both sides of the argument. So first of all, give the side opposite to yours and then give your side and it makes your side seem more credible and trustworthy. There's also something called the pratfall effect where people like and trust you more if you make a slight mistake. So if you stumble on stage as you're going up to speak, people sympathize with you more and like you more. So basically what I'm saying is if you show ultra honesty uh, and you're honest about your flaws, that should probably be quite persuasive for this group. And then finally, you can also customize not just what you say, but how you say it. So speaking the right language, using the right tone and aesthetics. So based on the research I've done in the past, this segment probably likes bolder colors, you know, maybe white on black with big fonts, uh, a bit more kind of intense, exciting imagery, and so on, that kind of thing. Uh, so you can design your messaging, your your pictures, your adverts uh, in a way that's going to resonate with their personality. Thank you for that. Um, that's really helpful. And so, you know, our, our work around how to grow share of wallet, you know, as, as we've been discussing, hinges squarely on the success of building trusting relationships. Um, however, many financial advisors really still think that the core principle in building a relationship is by being a great money manager and delivering strong performance. And of course, that's important in our business. Um, but we've found that, you know, a, a competitive portfolio is just one part of the relationship equation. And, and while many, but unfortunately still far from all advisors 
now offer financial planning, a lot of them are just really focused on getting their clients to a magic number um, or making sure they don't outlive their assets, which is great, but it, it's just part of a much larger picture. Um, we found that more often than not, clients are craving more holistic advice that includes guidance on long-term life planning, dealing with the changes that happen along the way, job losses, illness, elder care, and so many other issues. And they're looking for somebody to be that trusted partner that goes through life with them and helps them navigate the ups and downs and also gets to that magic number. But this disconnect between what advisor thinks their main role is and what clients are craving exists in, as I think of it, for many reasons. Like, the competitor that we discussed earlier often doesn't like to engage in these planning conversations because they're so keenly focused on recent performance met metrics, often at the expense of long-term thinking. And another persona is uh, the collector. Uh, the collector is somebody that we think really would lean into planning, but they're often not given the opportunity because they've done such a good job of diversifying their assets among many advisors that nobody sees them as a valuable client or worth spending the time helping them with their life plan or revisiting it. And so I'm just curious with that as a backdrop and in light of the work that, that you do, what ideas might you have for advisors in terms of introducing the idea of holistic financial planning conversations uh, with the clients of different personas? Well, I really agree with you about the importance of relationships and trust. Uh, at Capuchin, we're doing a project currently for an ad tech platform uh, where you would think that it's very technical and, and it is to, to an extent. But when we talk to the clients, they always, first of all, talk about the importance of relationships with the company and ha having someone to, to be able to talk to and get support from. Um, so it seems to be uh, important in all of sectors but even whether where it's very technical and functional one as for uh introducing holistic financial planning conversations i think again it's important to use the the foot in the door technique and not try and overwhelm people with things but start maybe one area at a time there is analysis paralysis and choice and information overload if we're giving too much at once uh, so keep it simple offer defaults and suggested choices, that kind of thing, first of all. Um, and secondly, really important to remember the principle of what's in it for me or with them. This is a quick win that I very often recommend to clients is to see things from your customer's point of view. So what's the benefit of uh, taking on this these holistic conversations to them, in particular from an emotional motivational point of view so not just the functional bit the numbers that you're talking about but what's the end emotion that they're going to get out of having this conversation what's the motivation that's going to be fulfilled is it going to be to have better relationships with other people uh, is it going to be a feeling of success is it going to be bringing security and order and and safety to their life well what's the motivation for why they should do it so yeah always remember with them Wow. Well, as I knew it would, this conversation has been incredibly enlightening and I have so much more we could unpack with you, Patrick. But what we like to leave our listeners with when we close these is a couple easy to implement steps they can take today to help grow their business 
Are there ideas you have for advisors that want to begin employing nudges, say, with their clients on the topic of getting more transparency on even their clients' held away assets? And how should they start? Are there any cautions you would give them? Uh, well, uh, you can always hire us at Capitian uh, to <laughs> do course. some stuffy. Um, but otherwise, uh, you need to start with some research to get some hypotheses of what works, particularly for your particular target audience or context. So that could just be reading. You could read some books. Uh, you could read my books in particular. That'd be great. But also reading books like uh, Nudge will be a really useful start um, and give you some ideas for how to start implementing these nudges. But ideally, you would do some actual research of your own, get the customer in the room and talk to them, get out of your perspective and into theirs, step into their shoes um, and understand how they're thinking, how they're feeling, how they're behaving, and use that to generate some ideas for nudges, uh, which you would then implement. Uh, and this is probably the most important thing is to test, test, test. Uh, you can't test enough because mm -hmm. even if you have a hypothesis, it might not uh, always work for a particular context uh, or mm -hmm. audience. So in my first ever job many years ago, we had a nudge that we thought would work, which was to put a popular cartoon mouse, Speedy Gonzalez, on the front mm -hmm. of letters that was sent as a direct mail drop by a telecoms brand. Uh, we thought it would work because the mouse was familiar, emotional, uh, likable, but actually it was the worst performing mail drop they'd ever done. And with follow-up research, we found that the cartoon mouse made them think it was spam, so they just chucked it away. Um, so you really, really have to test these things in the wild. And as you get started, I think, as I mentioned earlier, probably the most important thing to remember is WIFM. Think about what's in it for me. What are the benefits, not just functional, but emotional, uh, for why people should care? Well, Patrick, another great story. I, I love that because I, uh, I understand how we always are we are always testing and marketing and it it just seems like some work and some don't so i that is great advice for advisors to continue to test don't just give up sometimes when uh, something doesn't work but test 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 well given the markets over the past couple of years you have definitely offered us timely information and it has been a real delight to have you on the podcast today thank you so much patrick my pleasure thank you if you're an advisor and would like to know more about Patrick and Capuchin Behavioral Science, please visit www.capuchin.cc. That's C-A-P-U-C-H-I-N dot C-C. This information, of course, is also available in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Flexible Advisor. We created this show for advisors to help them grow their business. If you like this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating, and most importantly, sharing our podcast with other advisors. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today on the, this episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor.
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.